and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host, Claire Biddles. Hello. So this week we are discussing Ira Sachs' acclaimed new romantic drama, Passages, um, which recently came out in theatres and you can now watch on Mubi. Franz Rogowski and Ben Wishaw play Thomas and Martin, a married couple living in Paris. When Tomas embarks on an affair with a young woman played by Adele Exarchopoulos, it throws their relationship into turmoil. So this is one of the most well-reviewed films of the year, somewhat absurdly. The main reason this movie got publicity in a lot of uh, kind of mainstream media outlets is because it was slapped with an NC-17 rating due to its sex Shocking. scenes. Shocking. Which the director had a lot of words to say about because it is uh, that's, <laughs> that's a homophobic and stupid decision. But in the end, it was released unrated in the US. We'll talk a bit about that later, but like, I obviously don't want the conversation to be dominated by uh, chat about censorship. But, um, <laughs> but this film does have quite a lot of sex scenes in it, but only by the standards of like other movies that are currently out, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Like it's the way the kind of sex scenes are directed in this film is just like so smart and interesting and characterful. So I think there's going to be a lot to talk about. Yes, lots. I'm excited. I feel like I've already talked about this film so much just in my life. Claire is coming into this podcast with weeks and weeks of expertise. Um, I think especially in the costumes, because last time we spoke about this, you were like carefully annotating details about all the costume stuff from the screener you had, which you weren't legally allowed to take screen caps of. So you were sitting there like, here's the blue jumper. Look at this. Look at this beautiful robe. So I first saw it at Sundance London in July. It came out at the first of September in cinema. So I had a couple of months of being like, Gav, you're going to really love the costumes. You're going to really love this film. <laughs> and you're going to really love the costumes in this film. And now it's on movie. I'm like making sure that everybody I know is uh, going to watch it who didn't see it in cinemas. So yeah, I'm a big fan. So to, to introduce the main players here... Ira Sachs is an American director. He has made several uh, very kind of well-regarded independent films. I think his most recent one was Little Men, which is unrelated to the Little Men novel. However, this is the first movie of his that I've seen. Are, are you more familiar with his filmography? Um, I'd seen a couple of his films before. Um, and since I watched Passages, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I went back and watched Love is Strange, which is a kind of probably about 10 years ago. Uh, film that he made but I think all of his films are quite similarly kind of broadly relationship dramas and have a kind of similar sort of tone of quite naturalistic kind of human uh, always works with really interesting actors usually I mean he's a queer director uh, and writer so it kind of come often comes from his own kind of world of queer people and I hate to use this term, but found family. <laughs> uh, so it's like kind of often about like queer family structures and queer relationships. The films that I'd seen of his before, I thought were good, but didn't like really get me in my gut like this one did. Um, so there's something about this one I think that's quite special. 
And um, the cast is tremendous. This is a very performance-focused film. You know, obviously it's a, it's an intimate relationship drama. It's obviously Ben Whishaw is the most famous, but the protagonist is played by Franz Rogowski, who is an actor who's come up several times in this podcast because he is basically the the darling of European indie cinema at the moment. He's incredibly talented. He also has really good taste in films, so he's just had this run of like mm-hmm. <laughs> a ton of really incredible movies over the past five years or so. Uh, last year. He starred in the movie Great Freedom, which was on Morgan's list of like the best movies of the year. So fucking good. Which I've not seen, but is is meant to be just like a masterpiece. And he's done all these other very acclaimed films like Transit and The Hidden Life. Yeah, he's like the boy of the moment for Christian Petzold, who's one of my, although he yeah. wasn't in his last film, but um, one of my favorite directors. So he's in like a couple of his, in Transit, he's like absolutely unbelievable. I'm sure we'll get into it, but he's like, got that perfect combo of like being a really compelling actor and he's got this like kind of weird sexy awkward physicality well, he's, he's a trained dancer so he has like he has a great deal of control yeah. over his body language yeah definitely and he's also just like got the best sexiest face yes. that you've ever seen, so. <laughs> he's got physicality and physicality <laughs> and then we have our beloved ben wishaw who I'm sure we're all familiar with and is continuing to have a really delightful career where like periodically he will do like Paddington or a James Bond movie and then he will do a five-star run on some A-list theatre play and then he'll do a tiny German independent drama. So it's like, Godspeed to Ben Wishaw, we all love him. And then the third actor of this trio is someone who is pretty well known in France but is less well known elsewhere. Her most famous movie is probably still Blue is the Warmest Colour, the uh, controversial lesbian teen romance movie from a few years ago. Adele Exarchopoulos is, uh, she's now 29, she's been in like a bunch of uh, French movies and um, I think this is actually the first of hers I've seen, although I'm not really sure how I've managed to do that because like she's just been so present over the past decade, but um, she is of course also excellent in this. Yeah, I feel like this was the first time I'd seen a pop-up in ages and then I'd seen loads of her films this year. She's also really good in The Five Devils, which is also a movie. So if you get in the movie subscription. Yeah, I heard that was really good. It's sort of like a sort of a semi-supernatural thrillery sort of thing. Yeah, it's really like I think it's like a first time director, although she's written a few things before and it's like very like you're really going for it and good for you. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, she's She's great in that as well, but she's got loads of upcoming projects, I think, that are more like more like kind of international projects. So yeah, she seems to have kind of come out of the woodwork a little bit. I- I'm sure she hasn't been in the woodwork in France, but... I mean, this is a true international release. Yeah. And international European film of a type that feels... It almost feels like this could have been adapted from like a 19th century novel if you were allowed to make 19th yeah. century novels that were about a gay couple (laughs) but um (laughs) just to to kind of set the groundwork here before we dig into it so the main two characters Tomas and Martin they have this very sort of artsy Parisian life where Tomas is a German filmmaker and um, we're introduced him in the first scene directing a scene from some kind of like indie movie or something and we already get the impression that he's sort of an annoying nitpicky tyrant (laughs) uh, because he's just like he's not like a complete monster but he's clearly just like a control freak and just not directing this film in a way that is particularly kind or indeed efficient 
and there's really no way of knowing whether the film is good or not. As this movie progresses, we occasionally kind of hear feedback from various test screenings of this movie and like initially it's not very good and then maybe it's improved a bit later on. It's like, well, we don't know. But we know that he is, he's like relatively young. He's in like his mid thirties and he's very cool, which is a key part of the costuming in this because he's always wearing these like very bold, very sexy costumes. And he is married to Ben Whishaw who is a bit more subdued. Imagine being married to Ben Whishaw. I literally can't. Just, Nothing could be more of a dream. Let's just think about the, that. The, the, sheer, the mere concept of being married to Ben Whishaw <laughs> is beyond our ken, the dream. But Ben Whishaw in this is, um he's sort of a, a working artist, so like a, a printer and graphic designer. He works in like a print shop in quite a senior role. It's like a solid middle-aged arts position and they have a lovely european studio apartment together but there's very clearly a bit of a gap in vibes between these two because ben wishaw's like i need to go to bed because i have work tomorrow and franz rogowski is very much like i need to party (laughs) franz rogowski's like i'm gonna ride my bike across town i'm gonna go to a party maybe tomorrow i'll wake up in a different country i just want to imagine how they met like I almost want like a mini series. It's like an episode for every year of their relationship or something being like, how did, how did this happen? The thing about this movie, right, is it's entirely in the present. There's no backstory intentionally. It's all about what is mm-hmm. happening right in this moment. But obviously you can kind of interpret how this relationship came about. And I think it, it definitely makes sense to me, right? Because it's like, they're both arts people. Like they're both hot. They're both in Europe. <laughs> they're both yeah. in the same <laughs> intellectual arts circles, right? And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Franz Rogowski's character has this real charisma to him. And it's a type of charisma that would definitely work better when you're like 27, right? So it's like yeah, when they were younger, yeah, so it would have been like, wow, he's just this like fascinating guy who's full of energy. And then when you're like 43, you're like, this guy actually is really erratic and he's not grown up <laughs> at all during the last 10 years of our relationship. <laughs> he's such a free spirit. Then he's, I wish he'd stop being such yeah, a Yeah, exactly. Free right. And it's like, he is kind of terrible, but like, because it's Franz Rogowski, you can really see the appeal. And like, there's some great interviews with yeah. Franz where he's just talking about how much he just like found it difficult to like this character because he was so unpleasant. But like, because you have this incredibly charismatic performer playing him, it works. And mm-hmm. that is the magic of casting and the magic of cinema. But um, Truly. the plot really kicks off quite early in this film because at the after party for like wrapping this film, Tomas Franz Rogowski's character meets Adele Exarchopoulos' character. And they just start like dancing together at this club. There's this amazing dance scene that's all about their sort of wordless flirtation and their body language. Oh, it's so hot. And it's really interesting. And um, and then they hook up. So it's like he he cheats on his husband. But right from the get-go, the film has this like really great kind of flexible relationship to sexuality without discussing stuff that I think is just like one of the film's most interesting, defining creative decisions. Yeah, I entirely agree. It feels like a breath of fucking fresh air. The whole thing is propelled by actual desire, by actual, the character's actual wants. You know, because people in real life don't talk like that. You know, like, after he's slept with Adele's character, Franz Rogowski goes home and tells tells Ben Wishaw, I'm sorry, I'm using their, like, actor names <laughs> rather than the character names. Franz Rogowski goes back and tells Ben Wishaw, like, oh, I slept with a woman and it was amazing. And, like... Ben Wishaw has this reaction that kind of tells you that they probably fuck other people, but other people are men. But But also also, he's kind of tired of this shit. He's like exhausted. Also he's tired of this shit. He's not very happy about it. He's like, (laughs) 
But Fratikowski's like, don't you want me to tell you about it? A couple of scenes later, like it kind of cuts in in the middle of when they're in an argument, probably kind of about the same thing. And Fratikowski is like, I love seeing you grow. You're like a brother to me. <laughs> and it's like, I wish I was like, your fucking brother? What? <laughs> You know, it's made explicit that they have this kind of poly-open relationship, but Ben Whishaw's sick of being caught up in this maelstrom. And him sleeping with a woman doesn't lead to this conversation where they're like, oh, but what does it mean? Like, do I have to change my blah, blah, blah? And they just get on with it. And it's like, yes, this is how real people in real life organise themselves. (laughs) People of the generation that they are, which is kind of the generation that we are as well, I guess. So it just felt very refreshing in that sense. The version of this that is either made by straight people or kind of aiming or (laughs) catering toward what is thought of as like a kind of four quadrant mainstream audience would have far Uh more discussion about identity and defining the relationship in a way that is often kind of exhausting and unnecessary. And like, especially to do with, like you said, like generational attitudes to queerness, which is something actually Ira Sachs has talked about in interviews about this film. Mm-hmm. There was a really great interview he did with RogerEbert.com. Many great interviews because he's clearly a really smart guy. He's sort of name dropping all these like random books that he's been reading recently. And I'm like, wow, these all sound like so interesting. <laughs> Ira, let's go for a drink. <laughs> he says like when he was co-writing the script with his writing partner, Mauricio Zacharias, he said, we were potentially hung up on the idea of change in terms of sexual identity for the lead character of Tomas. At least the people I gave the script to were hung up on the idea, meaning that I had friends who said, that's not possible. Why would someone make that change? And I was like, it's not a problem. I'm pretty certain. And then he kind of talks about, <laughs> he says, basically, the people who were reading the script from his immediate social circle, obviously, they, he said, these were people who came from an age in which sexual identity was hard to claim when there was a need to state it in a fixed form. That's changed in a lot of ways. I'm wary of the concept of progress because I don't see history as going in a consistently better direction. But around this particular question of sexual possibility and experience, I feel the film is testament to positive change. So like basically he's also saying that the the actors had input into this and they were saying like this is basically how we view things in our lives and our communities. The actors who are kind of more of the elder millennial kind of young Gen X sort of range. And I think that's just such a like an elegant way of putting that because like there's so much kind of identity labeling discourse which is just you know it's going to be going on for a while because that's just how human nature works right but like ultimately if you are in a social circle with a lot of queer people in it more of our generation everyone's gonna have like a more laissez-faire attitude i think unless you're someone who's spent a lot of time on internet forums overthinking labels you know (laughs) but i mean this also is like a very unusual viewpoint to be seeing on film because there's like millions and millions of movies about people who previously thought they were straight realizing they're queer but there's pretty much no movies where the main characters are established and identified as a quote-unquote gay couple and then one of them is like, oh, actually, I've had this realisation. Except it's not framed as a realisation because that's not really relevant compared to the central conflict, which is like a toxic, chaotic marriage. (laughs) And I think that there's also a really interesting direction that the film goes in. And this is where we're going to start saying like slight spoilers. Although as it is a relationship drama, it's not really about the plot. But so after Tomas moves out of his and Martin's home, 
Adele then gets pregnant. That creates a kind of tension because it's suggested that Tomas and Martin were going to maybe have a child and definitely Martin did want a child. And then Tomas in a chaos way is like, but this is good for you because you wanted to have a child and now we can have a child. <laughs> and Ben Wishaw's just looking at him like, yeah, fuck? and it's also it's like this is the point also where you're like, oh, he doesn't think about any other person's internal life because it's like he's using Adele as like a baby factory. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's like honestly the funniest moment in the film. And I when I was watching it, the like preview screening that I went to, you could hear everybody gasp because he's gone back to Ben Wishaw to fuck him. And then afterwards it cuts, he sat on the bed and they're looking at each other and he goes, yeah, so um, she's pregnant. <laughs> and it's like, you fucking joking me. It is so funny. Another thing that I thought was really funny, like looking through Letterboxd, a lot of the like one star reviews of people being like, this guy is so awful. How can you watch a film about a guy who's so awful? And it's like, because it's really funny. And he's really like, he's charismatic as well as being, aw- he's awful in an interesting way. Anyway, and there I is, just thought there that was is funny. a proud long history of making films about awful little guys. <laughs> well, exactly. It's like absolutely slotting into that, you know. It's so <laughs> fun. But there were definitely interviews where like the actors kind of talked about this as like an explicit theme in sort of the la- latter part of the film is gay male misogyny. Like the fact that he doesn't mm-hmm. he doesn't really respect her and being queer makes absolutely no <laughs> difference to that in the same way that it like doesn't eliminate everyone's like toxic racism and what have you. Yeah. There's a really interesting scene where they have this kind of cabin, nice little countryside cabin, and they go there with a bunch of their friends and including this family that are also a kind of blended family. And there's like this lovely glimpse of a kind of queer found family utopia that they could have. And and you just know that it's so fragile. And then it cuts to Adele lying on her bed looking like the loneliest person who's ever existed. She can hear them having sex in the next room. And it's just like, another thing about the kind of sexuality thing that I really like is that it's not giving Tomas a heteronormative family as a kind of answer, as a kind of uncomplicated way to slot his life in. It's giving him this utopian queer blended idea of stability and he still he still rejects it he's still just like he chooses the person who is causing every problem in this film right because it's like they also have like all these cool friends they have all these like interesting conversations and a lovely house and basically like they have this dream life and he is just totally Totally. ruining it like at every turn (laughs) and then the one of the really great scenes is when after she's got pregnant he goes to meet her family but he's what? wearing this outfit which is this <laughs> tiny little crop top and like these kind of weird trousers and i think he's just coming back from like hooking up with his ex-husband and then he comes oh, yeah. in and is like greeting this very middle of the road middle-aged parents part of you is kind of like well they seem really judgmental and then you're like maybe you would be judgmental if you're if your you unmarried daughter has just like hooked up with this guy who is was gay until five minutes ago and is married and is showing up late to like meet the parents and then is incredibly In rude yeah incredibly outfit. rude all the way through the dinner so it's it's almost like a satire of the meet the parents homophobia scene because you're like yeah i mean they're a little homophobic but they're also very right in other ways <laughs> yeah <laughs> i love it that was a really interesting thing that Ira Sachs was saying. He did a Q&A after the preview screening I saw. 
somebody asked about that scene and he'd already said that he saw the film as an action movie, which got some laughs. But then when he described it, it's like the way that I now see it, which is that all of the changes in the scenes and the way that it's shot are propelled by action. And the action is like very kind of gut feeling driven. Like it's, like I said, it's driven by that desire and everything is about moving forward and being propelled, whether that's kind of for better or for worse. And another way that he was talking about how that kind of manifests is through the costuming. He was like, so when we were mapping out the scenes, we were thinking, well, there's going to be some tension in Tomas going from one place to another through the costumes because he is existing between these worlds or like in this kind of in-between place. So what does it mean if he comes from this place to this place wearing this costume? And like, what does it mean for this piece of clothing to appear here and then be transferred to another person and then appear later, half an hour later in the film? Like how, how do those transitions affect the tension in the film and I was just like and that scene where he's wearing the gay disco outfit to meet the parents is like the ultimate because he's like the thing that I love as well like he's wearing these outfits that are all like very kind of like you said very cool and very bold and sexy but he always chucks this big teddy bear coat over them and like gets on his bike and then rides off across the city it's like one of the big kind of recurring images of the film so it's like this idea that like that's his disguise that he goes out into the world in and then like reveals this thing like at the end of the film the sequence is that he's like riding across the city wearing this suit because he's like going to go to a premiere of his film but he's still got this teddy bear coat over it and it's just like really funny how he's like right this is this is how I get for me to be but it's always covering up some kind of something that shows how I'm feeling inside or something revelatory about myself. He has such a specific sense of style. His outfits are so sexy, but kind of sloppy sexy. And for a guy who's like in his mid to late thirties, the actor is 37. He's spending a lot of time kind of like impromptu sleeping on people's couches because he's like gone to a party, you know? Yeah. And we should just talk about the costumes a bit now, which is that the, the, the costume designer yeah. is Kadia Zagai, who is someone who has worked with Iris Sachs in other movies. She's done a couple of interviews about this movie, including one with Iris Sachs at the website Platform Art, which is great. This is like some of the best costumes of the year. Long-time listeners will know that I'm often harping on about like the lack of recognition for contemporary costume design. And this is the quintessential yes. example because it's so characterful there's lots of color choices that are very intentionally thematic like they have this palette that is been very clearly and explicitly hammered out by the director but there's also kind of the costumes tell us a lot about the characters and fit the physicality of the actors very well so like obviously you have Franz Rogowski wearing these outfits like you know a translucent crop top or like big baggy stripy pants and this this mix of sort of designer stuff and charity shop stuff and then Ben Wishaw his husband is wearing stuff that's just a lot more normal like he's this sort of stylish quite basic guy wearing smart casual and looking nice you know but then there's this one scene that there's a couple of like sort of the robe is absolutely god the robe is like gift from the gods (laughs) I came out of this film being like, I will think of this robe every day of the rest of my life. So like Ben Wishaw, the most beautiful, like delicate pixie man. I I remember Jim from Gaze the Word, the guy who owns the bookshop Gaze the Word in London, who has always got a great turn of phrase, once describing him to me when he was talking about 
Ben Whishaw being in the shop as a thoroughbred. (laughs) (laughs) Which is exactly true. A a thoroughbred deer. Just like his exquisite bone structure. And there's this scene where he's wearing this bright, bright red gossamer, beautiful Very sexy, very femme. It's just divine. The fact that he's like, you know, going to work in this print shop and he has to dress quite, you know, stylishly, but quite kind of like every graphic designer man that you know who's 37. Very practical. But then at home in the bedroom, he's wearing this fucking angel robe. <laughs> and then there's another scene where he meets, there's there's another man that he that he ends up sort of having a thing with who's extremely beautiful. Let me find his name. You know, he's he's like another French character and he's he's like this sort of very acclaimed intellectual kind of writer, novelist guy. So like early in the film, they have a dinner together with like Tomas, who's just very rude and judgmental to this guy who is essentially blameless. And then after their relationship is totally on the rocks, Martin starts having a relationship with this this other guy, this writer. It's just a great dynamic because this guy is clearly treating him better. He's a decent man. They're really well suited. This guy wants a steady relationship but he still gets thrown over for like another chaotic chance with Tomas. And he is just like, look, you're clearly like brain poisoned by this man. <laughs> the actor's name is Erwin Fale. I've not seen him in anything, but he's he's really great. And there's also like a really nice, like I said about the kind of clothes being passed between characters. There's a really great kind of scene where he plays a character called Ahmad and Ahmad is wearing the, the red robe, but where it was like kind of, swamped Ben Whishaw's tiny frame this guy is like quite a kind of stocky black guy with a big earring and like tattoos and stuff he's like very sexy in in a very different physical way to Ben Whishaw and he's got this robe over and it's like he's wearing this child's robe (laughs) and it's just like a really kind of it's sweet, funny moment where you're and and it's and it's in the moment where Ahmad is breaking up with Martin and kind of leaving the flat, and you think, oh, but they could have had this like lovely relationship where he's wearing his like little femme robe and stuff, and it's yeah, the film is full of really really nice moments like that. Also, so when those two meet for the first time, Ben Whishaw's wearing this lovely little uh, sort of baby blue sort of pussy bow blouse yes, as well yes which is gorgeous and it's like you know you get this sense that he's like yeah this practical guy but he's also got disco gay elements come out occasionally which again it's like depending depending on who he's with yeah really kind of lovely in the context of ben wishaw's sort of evolution in the public eye you I know agree, because like yeah. he's he's a really shy private person and also he's like very famous and he's managed to articulate this pretty unique career where he is able to be very famous but also like be somewhat anonymous even though he's very Mm -hmm. recognizable and do huge projects and do really interesting small projects and for like a long time you would only ever see him in public wearing like a really big jumper and sort of hiding (laughs) gorgeous now he's sort of like in middle age he's got more like style going on so it's like in interviews about when he and Franz Rogowski first met, like basically Ira Sachs like set them up on a date and kind of left them to it. And Franz Rogowski was just like, I met him and he was so beautiful and he was wearing these like gorgeous dangly earrings. Cause like Ben Wishaw's thing at the moment is he's always wearing like really long dangly earrings and they're so beautiful. (laughs) I just want to die when I see... I remember where I was when I first heard that Ben Wishaw had a little earring and it was my friend uh, Sean had saw him in the Photographer's Gallery Cafe and live texted me the whole thing. (laughs) 
she was like, Steam Ben Winshaw, he's getting a cake. He's sat here. He's wearing a big coat. He's coming nearer to me. He has an earache. <laughs> I remember when he was doing the women talking press, he's the only guy in the cast and he'd show up with like a long wool coat and this just like beautiful little earring. And I was just like, you are the most beautiful, precious man I've ever seen. <laughs> The more you love him, the more you're like, I would absolutely leave him alone. Yeah. I mean, I would never approach a celebrity anyway, oh, but yeah. like, I would certainly never approach Ben Wishaw. It's no. like, we all know that you want to not be interacted with. No. <laughs> Seeing him across the room would be just a dream. Yes. I have seen him in theatre mm. twice, and it was a feast for the senses. I would have loved to have seen him in The Crucible playing like a horrible oh, middle-aged yeah. farmer every night. Just being nasty to teenage girls. Oh. Fantastic. I'm going to insist you put this in the show notes. So there is, this isn't related <laughs> to past dreams. I think I know what you're about to recommend. Is this The Crucible Diary? So there, is this, there is this article on, I think it's The New Yorker. It has been on my in my open tabs since Ben Wishaw was in The Crucible, which was like, It's a what, masterpiece. 2015. I look at it whenever I'm sad because it just makes me feel so good. It's got these beautiful pictures of Ben Wishaw and his husband just like living their lives there's also a revelation that him and his husband don't talk to each other in the morning they just like quietly sit with each other which is the relationship that I want and (laughs) he just like goes to bookshops and looks at churches this is one of the bits it's like I may in fact be addicted to buying books on bad days I think of quitting it all and working in a bookshop I was very taken with this table of translations I bought one by Yukio Mishima and one by Peter Hank He's he's absolute self parody. Just... I mean, there was in the UK. I don't know if you ever watched like Simon Amstel's sitcom. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, the, yeah, yeah. He was like a minor celebrity when we were teenagers, basically. Simon Amstel, and he made a sitcom that was kind of clearly based off his own life. And there's this like guy that he's fucking obsessed with, who is just this like cartoonishly waif like guy who always wears giant jumpers and just wants to waft around reading books <laughs> and like being whimsical. Very clearly, Ben Wishaw. <laughs> I remember watching that and being like, same. <laughs> I understand you, Simon Amstel. <laughs> Before we kind of reach the end of this film, we should talk about the sex scenes and then yes. talk about the ending, I think. Yeah. So the sex scenes, like you said, got attention because of the current climate and discourse that is exhausting and the kind of censorship element of it sort of struggling with the ratings in the US. But kind of the upside of that is that people had been talking about how great the sex scenes were in this film. And kind of like we were saying about the costumes, like extremely characterful, very revealing about, you know, there's no real separation between any of the action in the film, whether that's sort of the conversations, the kind of going between a place and the next and the fucking. It's all kind of a similar kind of level. They're also like filmed in like a really interesting way. I mean, they're, they're at least one of them is filmed in one shot where it's just yeah. like two to three minutes of just the sex scene. And it's definitely filmed very differently from like, you know, you watch mainstream movies, especially from kind of like 15 or 20 years ago when there were more sex scenes. And it's sort of this, you know, very very heavily kind of fictionalized, eroticized atmosphere, which is like obviously nothing wrong with that. Like a lot of them are quite sexist, but it's just like a different style. Whereas in this, it's like practical and pragmatic. You can kind of see what they're doing. Mm -hmm. It's not focused on eroticized body parts or erogenous zones. It's focused on like what the bodies are doing. There's one scene where it's like the focal point is like the the way that like Franz Rogowski's forearm muscles are moving when he's fingering Adele. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's one which is like, it's all about Ben Wishaw's back mm-hmm. on top. <laughs> and like, that sort of thing. But it's like, God. it's all about kind of musculature and mm-hmm. dance. And mm-hmm. it's explicit, but it's not like, here's a bunch of tits. It's like, it's got a real kind of um, specific philosophy to how they're kind of portraying the body, to phrase that in a pretentious way. <laughs> <laughs> and I think more like erotic and sexier because of it. Yeah. These feel more intimate. Also, I think it's like a really interesting way in which both the kind of fingering scene and the the one with Ben Wishaw where it's on his back, you're seeing parts of their bodies you're focused on parts of their bodies that the sex partner can't see Mm, and isn't focused on and and there's something about that that is like particularly intimate but also also kind of shutting you out in a way and another thing that Ira Sachs was saying at this Q&A that I was at was having sex with somebody is more intimate than you're ever going to get like because that's a part of you that your friends aren't going to see unless you're sleeping with your friends, but it's a part of you that nobody's going to see. It's like, you can have sex with somebody once and never see them again. And that's a more intimate relationship with somebody than that you've known for like 20 years who you haven't had sex with. And I was like, that feels like something that like is against a lot of discourse <laughs> currently, you know, like. I mean, it's also very individual because like a lot yeah, of people feel that way. And a lot of people are like, it's just something I do like a game of table tennis. Like, Yeah, no, truly, <laughs> truly. And he wasn't framing it as like, you know, this is everybody. He was no. just kind of, this is how it's a very he specific, sees it. Yeah. His own personal feelings on it kind of drove the kind of philosophies of the characters. I think that you saw that personal philosophy come out in those sex scenes as well. I mean, in terms of how they filmed them, they talk about this a lot in interviews. There wasn't an intimacy coordinator in this film, which is something that's become a lot more present in film and TV production recently. And um, I am very in favour of. Mm-hmm. But it's it's kind of interesting to see that in the context of the conversations they have here, right? Because like mm-hmm. on the vast majority of movies and TV shows, I would say that intimacy coordinator is a very good idea, especially just for like random Netflix shows and stuff. Because it's yeah. like most directors are not really thinking about this very consciously. A lot of people have dubious ideas about consent. It's very awkward to have conversations with a bunch of actors about like what they're comfortable with. So basically the purpose of an intimacy coordinator is to be a sort of diplomatic go-between between the director and the actors and between the actors themselves to make sure that like people aren't having their consent violated mm-hmm. in some way and to and also to like figure out how to film stuff logistically in a way that mm-hmm. looks good. And with this, like you read this interview, it's like you don't you don't come out of it being like, wow, I can't believe they didn't use an intimacy coordinator. It's like, well, you don't necessarily need them on every project because yeah. <laughs> this is like mature people who are able to have a collaborative discussion mm-hmm. on equal footing without it becoming exploitative. And I'm not like, oh, these other people aren't grown-ups. You can have like the same actor working with like fucking Michael Bay or something and it'll mm-hmm. be an absolute hellscape. This is very kind of old school artistic collaborative process. Yeah. And also these are actors who are used to being in this kind of film and have signed up for this explicitly. So mm-hmm. there's this um, interview quote from Ben Wishaw at Slant Magazine. The question is, was Franz's eye for composition helpful at all during the extended sex scene, given that it was lightly scripted? You've both talked about it casually, but there are so many story beats within that scene just from body movement alone. And Ben Wishaw says, The script just said, Tomas comes into the bedroom, he undresses and they make love. It was the shortest scene in the whole script. It's not the only scene that's like this, but it was like an improvisation in the sense that we didn't know how it would go. It was discovered in the moment and Ira just let it play out more or less in real time. 
I was like, wow, this is going on a long time. But then I just sort of relaxed into it and cool. We're just like filming this scene like two people are having sex. This is the length of the sex they're having. That was great. It felt completely essential to the story, not gratuitous or exploitative or anything else like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's amazing that that was the background and that comes across like I'm not surprised that that was the case. One thing that I also kind of wanted to mention just before we get onto the ending, we were sort of talking about the physicality and about Franz Rogowski's as a dancer and about these sex scenes choreographed as kind of dances and and stuff like that. Another thing that uh, Iris Sachs mentioned was that he first wanted to work with Franz Rogowski when he saw the scene that that he's in in uh, Happy End, which is a kind of middling Michael Haneke film. But the scene that he's in, I'll put a YouTube link in the show notes. You only need to see the scene. And it's him doing karaoke to uh, Chandelier by Sia. But he does this dance that is like absolutely unhinged, rolling off the sides, like the walls (laughs) and like hanging off the ceiling and stuff. And (laughs) Iris Axe was like, I knew it then. I knew I had to work with him. (laughs) And and he also called him a beast of cinema, which I think is an extremely great phrase. But he was like, you know, that was the moment, like seeing the way that his body moves and the way that his body can respond. Hearing that quote from Ben Wishaw, like, I would like to know (laughs) what the process was for that scene (laughs) and like how much Franz Rogowski was told exactly what to do but yeah that's like another good way into like Franz Rogowski's particular appeal as an actor. So the final act of this film after Adele has fallen pregnant and you know Tomas is starting to miss he's missing Martin but he is also missing in his words having sex with a man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's just like it's like fantastic problematic bisexual uh, representation it's here so um and like he's not invested in spending time with adele's character agatha and like establishing themselves as a family so he is essentially like leaving her to have this baby and then she breaks up with him and the next scene is she has an abortion but like tomas doesn't tell martin this so she meets a martin for lunch oh. and he like basically is trying to make peace with her and then gives her a gift for the baby. And she breaks the news to him. She's like, I I had an abortion. Like, didn't Tomas tell you? And this is obviously the last straw for Martin. So he breaks up with Tomas right before the premiere of his film at the Venice Film Festival, which is like, as Claire mentioned, the kind of the final scene of this is him wearing this tuxedo and then cycling through the streets of Paris and he like cycles to Adele's workplace which is that she is she's like a primary school teacher so he walks into a public school and accosts her at her classroom begs her to get back with him and like come with him to Venice I practically had my hands over my eyes I was like this is unbelievably cringy it's like stressful it's so because you're just like she's just normal basically she's just like this normal woman who like got really horny for a hot guy which is completely understandable behavior and now he's like fucking showing up to her class of 11 year olds in a tuxedo and they of course are a gog she ends up leaving him like lying on the floor and he has to be ejected by one of the school workers and ends up trudging pathetically out of this primary school and then cycling very dangerously through the streets of paris and i remember like my letterbox review was basically just like franz rogowski's cycling is like a metaphor for his 
need for a st- stable relationship because like he's so unstable on this like two wheel bicycle he needs the at least put a helmet on babe <laughs> even though it's like not that kind of film and you know he's not gonna die in a bike accident I spent every bike scene being like he's gonna die in a bike accident <laughs> yeah it's extremely extremely chaotic the ending is this kind of like very chaotic like free jazz playing and very loudly over his cycling and Cassavetes-y which is very one, of the, one of the many reasons I was like no wonder Claire loves this because you were like a huge <laughs> Cassavetes fan honestly between the Cassavetes vibes and the clear fastbender analogy because he's like a chaotic bisexual pain in the fucking ass who actually like it's quite interesting like the fit the opening scene he's directing this film it's got a kind of like Weimar Berlin cross with like played in the 1970s way that feels like a Fassbender film yeah yeah clearly not like a really authentic vintage thing to the point where like initially at the beginning of that scene I was wondering is he directing like a like a liquor ad or something like a cabaret themed liquor ad But it's definitely got, and I'm like, oh, this is definitely a Fassbinder. Like, he knows what he's doing. Also, interestingly, the film that he's directing is also called Passages. Think about that. But yeah, the ending, it's like this kind of like huge surge of this free jazz. And he's he's got somewhere to go because he know, you know that he has to go to this premiere. And he's like, he's dressed in a suit, but he has to get to Venice. So you're like, is he getting the train and then well, stepping straight off or is he getting the What it was flight? is that when he and Martin have the breakup scene, I think he was trying on his tuxedo oh, maybe okay. to pack it and right, was like, see right. what it would look like. And then he just yeah. has his little breakdown and goes off while he's still wearing the yeah. tux. <laughs> so he's kind of like, you know, you know he has a destination, but is he going to it? And it's the only time in the film where he's not dashing off to somewhere. He's just kind of... Now he's stuck in this in-between place, which is where he lives, really. He lives in this chaos between these destinations that he's going to. And it freeze frames and that's the end. And it's kind of like, he's stuck now. He's stuck in between everything because he's in his own chaos. And it's just like, I don't know. I often think that freeze frames are like a bit of a cop-out, but like a kind of fade out in a song but it just feels really like yes this is the only way to end it because otherwise there's no end (laughs) it just keeps going forever (laughs) great ending in my view yeah i agree i agree what a film (laughs) i think that it's like i'm obviously coming up to the end of the year you think like hmm, what are my faves of the year and like i think that even though i think we both saw kills the flower moon this month and we both agreed that it was an entire masterpiece but I think that like my favorite film of the year has been Passages just because I've been thinking about it so much afterwards and it really like grabbed me so specifically and I've watched it a few times now and every time I'm kind of like thinking about more layers to it and in the same way that Cassavetti's films make me feel when I rewatch them you know like because they're all similarly focused on humanity and similarly kind of character driven but like in a very intense way and yeah I just feel like this film was made for me baby (laughs) it really is it is like the quintessential Claire film for sure (laughs) and I'm so glad you loved it as well because like honestly I was like I mean I was very stressed and I don't want to watch it again because I was so stressed out but I was like it's fucking great I was texting Gav after I knew that she'd seen it and I was all like, what did you think? No pressure. (laughs) 
I love it so much. Oh, also, um, I'll put in the show notes, I wrote some program notes for our local cinema, the GFT, shout out the GFT. Lovely. Which have more of my organised thoughts rather than me just going, ah, bah, bah, bah. Ben Wishaw. <laughs> so I was just like segueing into the Ben Wishaw fangirl hour for 10 minutes. <laughs> yes, deserved. <laughs> So, coming up next, we have two very fun episodes on the docket. First of all, The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which is the prequel to The Hunger Games franchise. It comes out November 17th. I am very hyped to hear that this actually has positive buzz, which is not typical for the type of movie where a studio is just transparently trying to squeeze money out of old IP. But yeah, I will be reviewing that with Stefan. And then after that, Claire and I will be doing a Patreon-sponsored listener request for the beloved 1992 rom-com The Cutting Edge, which is about a figure skater and a hockey player who fall in love. So that is uh, very much my area. And yes, you can still request stuff on Patreon, especially if it's episode ideas for either Claire and I or Stefan and I to do, because that's kind of easier to schedule at the moment. Also... On the Patreon, in the imminent future, we will have two episodes coming up with Morgan, one of which is a review of season two of Our Flag Means Death, which is a show we've enjoyed greatly. You can find our episode on season one at episode 255 on the main feed if you want to hear our very positive thoughts on season one of Our Flag Means Death. And also, uh, we've already recorded a very negative and derisive review of Emerald Fennell's new film Saltburn, which comes out on November 17th. So... That'll be up in the next like week or so on Patreon. Uh, Morgan hasn't seen it, but I did see it. And I was just like, this is so annoying that I have to just like rant at you. I need to vent. <laughs> I absolutely can't, personally cannot wait to hear about this because Emerald Fennell is my personal enemy. I haven't seen Saltburn yet, but I can't wait to be a hater because I'm going to have to see it because I'm a proud member of Barry Keown Nation. Yeah. I feel like our beef has strengthened because she cast Barry in I mean, the cast project. is good. Like, Jacob Elordi is good. Like, they've got, yeah. like, fun actors playing the posh parents. Yeah. This movie's getting a lot of buzz and hype. The reviews are pretty mixed. They're more mixed than with Promising Young Women, which I found politically loathsome. Hated I think we did it. an episode of that. It was just, like, absolutely appalling views appalling. on rape culture and everything. Just damaging. Poorly constructed philosophically. But this film is sort of, it's, it's meant to be, like, a talent talented Mr. Ripley, but British class satire. And um, the thing is, right, that like, she's certainly a competent director, but all of her ideas are terrible. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to get someone to pay me to write about this. (laughs) Somebody please, please. The culture needs it. I was going to mention this at the top of the show, but I forgot, which is, I'm now freelance. I do mention it last week on our on our Exorcist podcast with Stefan. However, the Daily Dot did lay off its entire uh, culture section last Ooh. month, uh, which means that I have now been very hastily launching myself as a freelance artiste. So if you want to hire me to like write about TV and movies, uh, reviews, podcast scripting work, etc., I am available. And you can find me at g.baker.whitelaw at gmail.com. Yeah, I mean, I've already been writing a bunch of stuff for various places. I did a lot of... Um, our flag means death coverage for TV Guide, which was awesome. And I've written for a few other places too. But yeah, I'm hoping someone will pay me to write about Selburn because... Please, the culture needs it. It does. The culture needs haters. Yeah. And highly specific haters because like American audiences need to understand her context in like the British posh film industry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Because also like Talented Mr. Ripley, one of my favourite films. It's great. Five star movie. 
Five star movie, everybody's hot. One of my favorite just cultural products across all media is Brideshead Revisited. And when like all these comparisons were coming up, I was like, she fucking wishes. Yeah. <laughs> On, that On that note, yeah, you can find overinvestedpodcast.com where all the show notes will be. On social media, overinvested pod, like Instagram, Tumblr, uh, still Twitter, more or less. You can find me at Blue Sky at Gavia. I will have a website soon so you can find my various press clippings and hire me for things. And also, like, if you enjoy the show, please give us a positive rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever it is you're listening to on this. And uh, Claire, where can folks find you? People can find me on the dying platform that is Twitter at Ms. Claire Biddles. They can also find me at Blue Sky at Ms. Claire Biddles, which I'm only recently on, so it's still getting used to what the what the tone and the vibe is. But I am collecting friends, so please come there. I'm also on Letterboxd at just Claire Biddles, confusingly. Oh yeah, I'm on Letterboxd too. Hello Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> My life has been so hectic this month I have not watched very many movies, but like I'm hopefully now less less hectic. <laughs> Yay. You can also hire me to write about things as well. Thankfully, me and Gavia write about completely different things, so we can We're not we can competition. Hus- <laughs> we can hustle together. <laughs> All right, bye-bye. <laughs>